who came and invaded this space-time realm and put on flesh that we might live. And my prayer is, Father, that you would cleanse me from my sin, that you would wash each and every one of us, that you would anoint us with your Holy Spirit, that we would hear your life-changing word this morning. Our meeting together this morning is no accident. And when your word is shared, no matter who shares it, when it's your word, anointed by you, eternal things always happen. I'm praying you open our hearts and that you allow your word to come in and meet the needs that we have and cause us to turn to you. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 1. Of course, this is the beginning of the Advent season. And I, for one, am one of those people that cannot wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? I cannot wait for that. I've seen enough, and I can't wait for it to happen. But we are living between the first coming and the second coming. And what's just as exciting to me is the fact that he's physically going to return again, is that he has come into this sanctuary this morning. And I think that we need to teach our children, when I, when I do chapels and when I pray for chapels with our teachers, I'm always emphasizing, the Holy Spirit is here. This is the living Word of God. This is no ordinary motivational speech. This is God's Holy Spirit wanting to touch us and he's here. So... This is the Advent season. We're looking at the fact that He came and that He's coming again, but what we're really doing is saying, Here He is now to meet us. Luke chapter 4 verse 1 says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now Jesus has just begun His earthly ministry here, and under the watch of God Himself, Jesus, in complete obedience to his father, was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Now, of course, Jesus had no sins that needed to be forgiven. He wasn't being baptized like we do, representing the fact that our sins have been cleansed. But Jesus was baptized by a man simply out of obedience to his father and as an example for you and I. And after obeying his father humbly... The Bible tells us in Luke 4.1, as he was full of the Holy Ghost and in obedience to his Father, that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There are people here in this room this morning that need to know something. If you're in a wilderness, if you're in a place of trial, if you're in a place of temptation, it does not mean God is not with you. God's own Spirit drove Jesus Christ into the wilderness to do battle with the devil. And it was a rough time. But He didn't drive Jesus into the wilderness to see Him destroyed. He drove Him into the wilderness to show you and I forever through this Word of God that through the Word of God, through Jesus Christ, we can conquer Satan however He comes. It's recorded for us because God's Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And you see, God has not driven you into the wilderness to destroy you. 
And there are times that we face trials and temptations and difficulties. And Satan loves to come in at those moments and say, where's God? You're not good enough. Devil, I never was good enough. Jesus is with me. And when Jesus went into that wilderness, we know how the story goes. Everything that Satan could bring against him, what did Jesus say? He said, it is written. And I'm forever teaching my students, we're not old-fashioned because we believe in the written word of God. God chose to put his word down in book form so that I have before me his very words. And when Jesus battled the devil, he said, it is written. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that this word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And no matter what Satan could bring to Jesus in the physical realm, Jesus was doing battle in the spiritual realm. And see, that's the problem. Sometimes we think our battle is our physical illness or our financial trouble or the person we can't get along with. Our battle is sin itself. Our battle is in the spiritual realm. And we only win when we say, it is written. And in order to be able to say that, we have to know it. We should be reading and studying and loving and hoping and holding this book close to our hearts. Jesus, when he did battle with the devil in the wilderness, reminds me of one of my favorite stories, David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, verse 45, you can read it for yourself. David and Goliath. David was that little guy, that little boy, who looked up at a mighty Philistine, nine feet tall, wore 150 pounds of armor. He was that big. And this, this guy was going around, this giant, telling the Israelites, cursing their God. And David was so put out that somebody would curse his God that he decided to go do battle with a nine-foot giant. And not only did he go do battle, he decided to take no weapon, but a tiny pebble and a slingshot and the word of God. And they were in the valley of Elah, and there were the Israelites on one mount, and there were the Philistines on another mount, and David said, nobody's going to curse my God and get away with it. And he goes to battle with this giant. And when he went to battle, 1 Samuel 17, 45 says, he said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, and you come to me with a spear, and you come to me with a shield, like we're going to do some physical battle here. But I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And when when David said that, when he says he's the God, the Lord of the hosts, do you know what the hosts are? The heavenly hosts. The the angels that are in this room right now, God's Holy Spirit, who is always with us. Don't let the devil tell you, you don't have enough money, you don't have enough talent, you don't have enough influence, your body is weak. We're not fighting this in a spiritual way. We're fighting this in the name of the Lord of hosts. Say it with me. The name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, who wins the battle on our behalf. Let Him fight the battle. And that's what Jesus did when He was in the wilderness. And after He does battle with Satan, and we know He wins because He takes this word with Him. He has this word hidden in His heart. 
And I have to get off on a sidetrack one more time and say, we got to get this word hidden in our heart. When we go out for coffee with our friends and when we're sitting around the living room at night, it should always come back to the word of God. Does it? And if it doesn't, we don't love it enough and we need to keep loving it more and loving him more. He is the living word of God and this is the written word of God. This is the one tangible thing on earth that we have that connects God to man. How much do we love it? Jesus did battle with Satan in the wilderness. And then we go down to Luke chapter 4, verse 13. And here's a phrase that you're probably going to want to underline or highlight in your Bible. Verse 13. And when the devil had ended all the temptations, he departed from Jesus for a season. If you like to underline and color in your Bible as I do, and I'm teaching many of my students to do, highlight that phrase, for a season. This should be one of the most convicting phrases that we as Christians read. You see, the devil did not let Jesus go for very long, did he? We're going to read a passage here and find out that after Jesus had preached in the synagogue... They took him out to the brow of a hill and attempted to kill him right here at the beginning of his earthly ministry with Satan as the divisor of that plan. Satan didn't ever let Jesus go for very long. He was always out to kill him. He was always out to destroy him. Never let him go for very long. Why? Because Satan knew. He knew who Jesus is. I'm going to make a very serious statement. Satan probably knows more about who Jesus is than many of us in this room live like we know. The devil never let him go. For very long. He pursued his destruction relentlessly. Here's my question Do we pursue Jesus Christ relentlessly in the opposite way because we know who he is? You see, the Bible says that the devil only departed from him for a season because the devil knows that when Jesus Christ, his first advent, when that little baby was born in the manger and was laying in the trough, that little tiny baby with human flesh was the God-man. God himself had invaded the space-time realm, had come down and broke through history, and nothing would ever ever, ever be the same. And we talked this morning during communion and I talked at the beginning, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. Satan knew that Jesus is it. That God had broke through and was going to make a way for you and I to be at one, to be at peace with God. And one day we could go to a place, amen, where there is no curse. We are suffering under the curse. 
In one day yesterday, I found out that my best friend's uncle was diagnosed suddenly with leukemia. I watched a, a, a house on our street nearly burn to the ground. Every day I see students and people I know suffering under separations and divorces and illness and sickness. Satan knew that none of that would ever be solved. No answer would ever come if Jesus' advent is his first coming were not to succeed. And so he pursued him relentlessly because he knew who Jesus was. Do we know who Jesus is? Do you know that Romans 8, 1 and 2 says that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Who needs to be free from the law of sin and death? He's here. We can receive freedom from the habits and the things that bind us, from the wrong thoughts that get us. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Satan pursued Jesus because he knew that Jesus would set us free. Do we know that Jesus sets us free? Are we letting him set us free? Romans 8, 1 and 2. That's why the devil never wanted to let him go. Jesus is everything. Patty asked me at the beginning, what do you want the title to be on the CD? And I said, well, my little nephew Noah, who's seven years old, helped me figure this out a while ago. I I don't know. I, I guess it should be Jesus, comma, Jesus, comma, Jesus, exclamation point. He's the reason. Listen, we spend so much time worrying about so many other things and getting caught up in what I call, in a seminar I do called the passion factor, I call this thing the daily grind of life. It's the getting up and brushing your teeth and ironing your clothes and getting ready and worrying about whether your car is going to start and whether you have enough money in your pocket to buy the coffee you want before you get to work and you kind of have a headache when you get there. It's called the daily grind of life. And we get so caught up in the daily grind of life, we're living like we don't know who Jesus is. Jesus is the answer. He is the God-man in the flesh, came to set us free. And listen, not only is my life here abundant because of him, I am going to a place. I am going to a place where the curse will be forever, forever erased. You see, right now, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Don't you love new things? No scratches, no dents, nothing to distract you. Brand new. Do you know that God sees you with no scratches, no dents, nothing to distract Him? Brand new. We don't walk and live for Jesus the way we should. So many times we're suffering under... Now, don't get this confused. There's conviction from the Holy Spirit that's meant to drive us closer to God. And then there's guilt that comes from the devil because Christians don't know the Word. And so we don't live a victorious, abundant life. 
because we don't believe, we don't know well enough in our spirit, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. But the reason I went there in the first place was to tell you, I'm going to a place where Revelation 21 says, the old order of things will have passed away completely. See, I'm Shelley Prindle with a regenerated spirit inside, suffering still with a broken body and a tendency towards sin in my flesh. But one day, when you meet me on the streets of heaven, I will have a new body and I won't have a temptation to sin anymore. And you and I will do all the fun things that we ever wanted to do with no more curse. I teach my students, I try to pound it into their head. You can ask them. If you ever want to know about me, ask them. There's so many of them here today. I love these guys. I try to pound into their head. Heaven is not a place where you play harps and sit on clouds. Only if you like harps and only if you like to sit on clouds because heaven is real. See, heaven is real. We've got to teach a biblical worldview. We've got to teach real apologetics. Heaven is more real than earth. See, everything that's natural was created by him who is supernatural, and the supernatural is more real than the natural because supernatural came first and natural flows from it. And so my students say, well, will I be bored in heaven? No, you won't be playing a harp. Do you like to shoot basketball? Ooh. Do you think if if God has given us talents and interests in this earth that glorify him, that he will take those away in heaven? Heaven will be infinity times greater than anything on earth. We get this through Jesus Christ. Satan never let him go for very long because Satan knew if I can destroy the plan of God, if I can take this one who was born as a baby out of a virgin's womb, and destroy his plan. It's over. In the same way I asked you this morning, do we know that if we pursue him in the other direction, that all the hope, all the freedom, all the joy that God Almighty offers comes rushing into us? And I don't mean that life is easy. If you know me, you know that I know life is not easy. But life is abundant and hopeful in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, chapter 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy, now catch this, hath begotten us again, into a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen, He has begotten us again into a lively hope. Begotten us again. We have been born again into hope. Do you know when a little baby is born, they come out of the mother's womb, and in order to live, what must they do? They must begin to breathe the air around them. 
When you are born again, people need to hear this this morning. Somebody needs to hear this. When you are born again, you're like a baby coming out of the womb of darkness. And according to 1 Peter 1.3, you must, you are surrounded by, you must breathe hope. If you're born again, you're breathing hope. The only problem is, in our sinful flesh, we don't take this word, plant it in our mind and in our heart, and live by the truth of it. You are breathing hope if you are born again. If God has made you a new creature, hope surrounds you. If you're not living by that hope, it's only because you aren't meditating on that hope and seeking his face. You can fix that. We are born again into a living hope. That's why Satan never let Jesus go. Because Satan's going down and, buddy, he wants to take everybody with him. He possibly can. His, he knows his fate is sealed. It's over. He's done. What can he destroy while he's going down? My little nephew Noah, he loves to ask me deep theological questions. And we got in this conversation once about the devil and about heaven. And how it will be perfect because there will be no more sin curse. Be no more Satan to deal with. And I took him to the book of Revelation and I showed him where God says that Satan will one day be forever thrown into an abyss. A bottomless pit. And Noah looked at me and he said, Shell, why is it going to be bottomless? What's that mean? And I said, If it had a bottom, then perhaps millions and millions and millions of years from now, his feet just might touch bottom and he might start to try to climb back out. But God says it's a bottomless pit and he is gone forever. It's bottomless. Hang on to that. I know there's lots of people who think I'm crazy. Not a bad crazy, a good crazy. That's okay. But you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning, and and it's the simple things of life. I'll wake up in the morning, my feet hit the ground, getting out of bed, and you know I'm thinking to myself, Satan, you're going down. And you're going down forever. And this may be a rough day. And there may be a lot of circumstances that I'll cry over today and that I'll hurt over today. And it might be hard to do battle with the devil in this life. But I've got to keep my perspective straight. I already know who won. Amen? When the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from Jesus for a season. Verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, which is Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, before I read what he read in the book of Isaiah... Here's a lesson in making sure we get context. And in making sure we pull from this word every morsel 
of hope that there is. You see, it's not just the ideas of the Bible that are inspired. Every word of God is in there for a reason. Now, check this out. Jesus obviously had a regular custom of going to the synagogue, which is a good example for us. And he is handed by the uh, one of the leaders in the synagogue, he's handed a book. Now, actually, it would have been a scroll. Books were in scroll form still at the time of Christ. So probably on papyrus or on a piece of parchment, there was a scroll that Jesus picked up. And it happened to be the scroll that was given to him was the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So let's get context here before we move on and think about this. Who is Isaiah? Well, Isaiah was a prophet of the Old Testament. We tend to think of this as one book all written at the same time. Mm Mm-mm. Isaiah wrote in 700 B.C. So Jesus is receiving a scroll into his hands that was written by a man who wrote approximately 700 years before Jesus ever came to the earth. And Isaiah was probably the greatest prophet. Oh, if you want to read a good book, read through the book of Isaiah. But you know Isaiah had it rough because he preached the coming of Jesus the first and second advent of Jesus in a time where people were all messed up. The people of God were all messed up. Isaiah was was talking and preaching during a time when God's own people were forsaking the true and living God to worship stupid idols made of wood and metals. And Isaiah said, if you don't turn around, you're going to be taken captive. And he actually watched the northern kingdom fall. Despite all he said, the people fell. And then he watched the southern kingdom be invaded too. He watched Assyria carry away God's people because they wouldn't heed his warning. And yet he kept preaching and he kept preaching and he kept preaching the truth. And he gave us the beautiful words that tell us about Jesus' first and second coming. He lived in a day much like today. When I don't worry so much about the world as I worry about the church. You used to know who your enemy was. And now the enemy's crept into the church. And Isaiah was preaching in a time where people, people, were trading relationship with the living God. Check it out in Isaiah 44. Do a study of that sometime. People, he, he said, basically, Isaiah was sitting back saying, are you nuts? You're trading relationship with the living God. You're taking a piece of wood. Here's what the people were doing, he said. You're taking a piece of wood, and you're, you're chopping some of it, chopping some of it, and you're putting it in the fire to make a fire so that you can cook your bread and eat it. And with the leftovers of that wood, you're carving yourselves an idol, and you're bowing down and worshiping it? It's the same stuff you just burnt. To heat your chicken soup. And now you're going to bow down and worship the other part of it? And you think when you're in trouble, this wood that you burn to eat can hear you? That this wood can save you? You say, that's ridiculous. Really? You think the $20 bills in your wallet can save you? You think they can help you? You think they can do anything for your soul? Do you think the career that you're pursuing at all costs 
Can that save you? You think that big house that the construction people built, that's made of wood and metal and plastic, is any of your hope? Do we do that? You read Isaiah 44. There's nothing wrong with having houses and money and cars. We all need them. And careers. God has called us to things. But never, ever, ever can those things usurp the place of God Almighty in the life of a true believer. Because when they do, you're going to wake up one morning and find that you have become captive to the enemy just like Israel did. And you'll be knocking your head saying, where am I at? What's going on here? Remember the idols? Don't sell yourself out. Live for eternal things. Isaiah was preaching in that kind of time. So he's preaching, and that's the kind of message that he has. And Jesus picks up Isaiah's scroll. And I... I can't help but when I read this, I think, oh, I would have loved to have been there to see the expression on Jesus' face. When he, he goes through the scroll and the Bible says, when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So I imagine him holding the scroll, right? And he, his fingers going like this. And he's looking for the right place, looking for the right place. And he comes to the place that's Isaiah 61. Now here's what I love. No doubt... He had scrolled through and his finger had touched right before that. Isaiah 53. Listen. Jesus Christ stood in his hometown, picked up a scroll written by a man 700 years prior to Jesus' birth, and his fingers came across. Who hath believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He will have no form nor comeliness. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Yet we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And then Jesus' fingers came to the words. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes, we are healed. And He kept going and saw He'll make His grave with the wicked and with the rich in His death even though he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Do you understand what I'm saying? According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Let me set this up before I make the point. I want to give you the evidence. According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Here's by what power Isaiah and the other prophets prophesied what they did. 
Now watch this. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 is speaking about our salvation. And it says, Of which salvation the prophets, including Isaiah, have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you and me, searching what or what manner of time, underline this, the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Spirit of Christ, which was in them. I believe it's only two times in the King James Version in the New Testament where the phrase Spirit of Christ is used together. Usually it's Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, Spirit with a capital S. Spirit of Christ is used here. Now check this out. You know what that means? When Isaiah sat down with his parchment and wrote, he is wounded for our transgressions. He's going to make his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. When Isaiah sat down and wrote, by his stripes we are healed, it was Jesus Christ himself who had his arm around Isaiah and said, write those words. He's sitting down with Isaiah in a time where his people have completely forsaken him. And he's looking down the annals of history knowing that when he comes, his people will reject him again. And he looked down to the year 2006 today and saw us and knew how much we would miserably fail him after he saved us. And he still put his arm around Isaiah and said, Tell them I'm coming. I'm still coming. I know what my people are doing now. I know what they're going to do. But write these words, Isaiah. I'm still coming. Somebody in the sanctuary today needs to hear this. He's still coming to you. He knows you have failed. He knows at times you have rebelled and rejected and not listened to His voice. But if He could look from eternity past and in 700 B.C. and down through the annals of history and say, knowing what He would face for us, knowing what He would do for a stiff-necked, rebellious people, if He could look down through the course of history and still say, Isaiah, write it down. I am still coming, then guess what? He is coming to this room for you right now. His grace is immeasurable. And for the sake of people who will cling to Him, He has come. He's still here. He's still looking for you. 
And so when Jesus picked up that scroll, do you understand the emotion that he must have gone through? He knew what he was about to face, and he knew what he wrote so long ago. And yet he picked up the scroll, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. Now check this out. Here it is. The purpose of his advent. And he said, Sean said it so well, and I love that our kids have the word hidden in their heart. I love that. And you know what? Let's just take a sidebar here and say, if we don't love the Word of God and show the next generation the power behind it and how much it means to us, then forget it. Somebody's got to love the next generation and show them this Word is powerful. This Word is real. And he picked up the scroll and he went to the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You remember when I said the devil's pursuing him? Are we? Do you realize this is real? This is for now? We ought to be pursuing Jesus. I'm going to tell you in a minute what some of these phrases mean, what they're loaded with. But we have to pursue Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the New Testament is filled with phrases that tell us that Jesus is only coming back to people who are looking for him. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13 says, The grace of God which bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. Don't you love that verse? The grace has come to everybody. But we like to take that verse and think, Grace, grace, God's grace. Isn't it wonderful? Covers all my sins. Yes, it is. But you know what else it does? So the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know how when you're throwing a party and you have like a best friend, a special friend that you really want to come and everybody else is coming and they're late? And you keep looking at your watch, is she going to get here, is she going to get here? You know, and that's the one person you're looking for, and so you're kind of distracted, and you're like, somebody get on the cell phone, call so-and-so, see if they're coming. Are they late? Are they in an accident? And you're looking, you're looking. Why are you looking? Because they mean something to you. Ooh, if we don't wake up in the morning and say, I hope today's the day my Jesus comes back. We're in big, big trouble. That's your barometer right there. He's coming back to people who are waiting for Him. That we know enough about who He is that we can't wait to be with Him. I'm in such relationship with Him that nothing else, nothing else means nearly as much. That's what it's about, right? Jesus has come. And He came and He spoke these words and He says, Here's the reason I've come. I've come to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, for those of you who are struggling financially in this room, of course that means Jesus will take care of your physical needs. 
Matthew 6.33, if you seek the first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus, right? At the very least, Jesus is taking care of our physical needs. Listen, at the very least. Grow up in Jesus and know, at the very least, He'll take care of your needs. But when Jesus said, I've come to preach the gospel to the poor, he wasn't just talking about money. Because I don't care how much money you have in this life. It doesn't really mean anything. Because in the next life, we got it all. When he said, I've come to preach the gospel to the poor, he meant, I've come to preach the gospel to the poor in Spirit. What does that mean? It means that I, Shelley Prindle, bring nothing to the table. I have absolutely no way to save myself. There's not one good thing that I could ever do that means anything at all that can right me with my Creator. And the minute I get a grasp on that fact and say, Lord, I depend on you, I become poor in spirit. And Jesus brings good news to those who are poor in spirit. Do you know that every other religion, every other religion, views it like this? We're standing at the bottom of a ladder that's against this big, tall building, and God's standing on the top of the building. And every other religion says, okay, let's find a way, find the right shoes, find the right movements to climb the rungs of the ladder. Got to do the right thing, follow the right path, don't care if it's Buddhism, Jehovah's Witnesses. It doesn't matter what the religion. Every other religion, you're finding a way to climb the ladder to get to God. But in Christianity, God's at the top of the building, And the ladder's leaning against the wall. And God is at the top. And he looks over at his son, Jesus Christ, and says, Reach down and scoop him up. Our foot can't touch the rung of the ladder. He says, Reach down and scoop him up. Reach down and get her and bring her up to me. That is Christianity. And that can only come to people who are poor in spirit. Now, there is nothing you can do to please the heart of God if it isn't covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we get to feeling comfortable with ourselves when we're in church and we have things that we do, places we think of importance. Let me share with you what I've shared with my students in the past. I want you to picture up on that screen a giant thermometer with the very top that says red hot on fire for Jesus Christ. And the very bottom says cold, hard rebellion towards God. And I want you right now to take a moment and ask yourself, where would you fall on that thermometer? Red hot, completely sold out for Jesus Christ in every way or cold, hard rebellion towards God. 
And when you answer that question, I want you to think about something. I tell my students, you know, sometimes they look at me and they're like, Mrs. Prindle, wow, she teaches Bible in a Christian school. She's sacrificed years of her life for really great pay (laughs) to teach Bible in a Christian school. She preaches sermons and we listen to her and we learn so much from her. God is not going to judge me or measure me based on how I look to you. has nothing to do with it. He's not going to judge Pastor Roy or Sunday school teachers or really great parents based on how you look to other people. Because you know what? The world we're living in, I can look pretty good even when I'm pretty dirty. Listen, there is no relative standard with God. So before you think you have anything to brag about, remember this. There is only one standard against which you will be measured when you face Jesus Christ on his throne. And that standard is the book you hold in your hand and the glory of God. According to Romans, sin is falling short of the glory of God. That means if I'm in a situation and the Holy Spirit says to me, Shelly, I want you to pray right now for so-and-so. I want you to walk over right there and I want you to speak to so-and-so about me. If I miss that, I have sinned. It's not just the big blundering sins. The glory of God is like the bullseye, you know? And we think murder and adultery and all those big sins, they're way out here, you know? They're not anywhere close to the bullseye. But guess what? Gossip, failing to speak to the person you're supposed to, failing to read the Word of God in front of your teenager, failing to talk about Jesus at the dinner table, choosing to ignore God and watch television for hours instead of being with Him. Well, that's moving in closer to the bullseye, but guess what? You've fallen short of the glory of God. So remember that thermometer? Where are you at? Because Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, if you're neither cold nor hot, if you find yourself in the middle or really, really close to the top, or just millimeters away, you have fallen short of the glory of God. Tell me, what is your hope? Your hope is Jesus. Jesus. He has come to preach the gospel to the poor in spirit. Raise your hand if you want to be poor. Poor in spirit. You want to know that there's nothing you can do to save yourself? Good, because it's when you get to that place. So those of you who are sitting in here and you think, I can't make it, I failed, I'm losing, that's right. Get down on your knees and ask Jesus to fill you. He will fill the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven belongs to us. That know we're nothing and that He is everything. When I was little, well, not so little, because, you know, I'm very, very young. Just a few years back when I was in middle school, I used to like to um, have tropical fish. 
My dad remembers this. I had an aquarium, and I liked particularly the sword tails, the orange and black sword tails. The only problem with tropical fish is, and those little sword tails, when the mother would get pregnant and about to be given birth, I knew I was in trouble because they eat their babies. So they, they sell these fancy little rectangular nets you can put in the corner of the aquarium and separate the babies from the other fish so that the other fish don't eat them. So every time one of my mother fish was pregnant, I would run home from school. I couldn't wait to get off the bus and check and make sure she hadn't started birthing yet because I had to save the babies. I just couldn't bear to watch them die. But they would die without my help. Now listen, I couldn't come home from school and with big magic marker on giant poster board write down the phrase, babies, run behind the castle and hold it up against the tank because fish can't read. Nor would it help me to come home from school, get really close to the tank, and scream, run for the plants! They're coming! Run! Because fish can't hear. In fact, sad as it is to say, those fish were as good as dead, unless I intervened. And here's what I would do. I would come home. I would roll up my sleeve, dip my hand in the algae-ridden tank, and transport the babies myself to the safety net. This world, this space-time continuum that we live in, is the aquarium. We are as good as dead. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And so God said, here's the Advent season. I'm going to roll up my sleeve and crash into their world. I'll do it myself. I'll come in and I'll get my hands dirty and I'll take on human flesh and I'll pull them out myself. Don't you hope in religion. Don't you hope in your good works. You cling to Jesus Christ. He has come to preach the gospel to the poor. I can't get off this point because I think it's like key. I think it's so important. I think we as Christians have gotten big heads. And we come to church and we get involved in church and we start to think we can do something for ourselves. And then we're always frustrated and unhappy and failing and looking for more joy and looking for more peace. Peace is in the resting in Jesus. There's only one time, there's only one reason I actually like Halloween. I know Jeannie Berger's going to be mad that I even said that. The only reason I ever liked Halloween, Mrs. Berger, the first year they came out with those two-foot-tall plastic witches that, you know, people plaster against their doors or against telephone poles, and and she looks like she's just smacked into it at 100 miles an hour, and she's like, and she's going to fall down the pole now because she's smacked into it. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, listen. The first time I ever saw one of those, I thought, that is so cool. Here's why. 
Telephone poles are made of wood, and it reminded me of the cross. Now listen to this. Every power in hell, every angelic, every demonic force, Lucifer himself and every person in this room will do something to the cross of Jesus. Now you will either run to that cross and embrace it for dear life or one day God will set it in front of you and you're living your fast-paced, selfish life. You're independent. I don't need God life. And you will smack right into it and be destroyed by the very thing you chose to reject. We are shaking our heads in this room because we agree. But the cross is not what saved you X years ago. The cross is what saved you X years ago and what sustains you this very second. That's where we've lost it. We get saved that we try to live in the flesh. We get saved, then we're all grown up from the cross. I did an all-school chapel on Thanksgiving, and I told the kids how we're pilgrims. Hebrews 11, read it for yourself. We're pilgrims. And I said, we're not going from England to America. We're going from bondage to sin to a home of righteousness. And we're not sailing via the Mayflower. But you know what? The Mayflower ride was nasty business. I told the kids, you know, so many people were seasick, and you would have smelled that vomit and that disgusting sickness all over the place and there was no light in the Mayflower under the deck because they would have burned the boat if they would have even lit a candle. It was darkness all the time except for light coming through the boards. It was cold. That same cracks in the boards would let water in when it rained and those people were miserable. And their first year here in America was horrible. It was rough. It's rough business being a pilgrim. It's not easy being a Christian. If your life is easy, you're in trouble. It's hard being a pilgrim. But we're traveling from bondage to sin to a home of righteousness, and it's worth the reward. It's hard, but it's worth it. But I said to the kids, we're not traveling the Mayflower. If anybody would have jumped off that Mayflower... Would have never made it. We are traveling on the cross. If you let go of the cross, you are dead. If I could get people to see, you can make it. The answer is so simple. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. Students say, Mrs. Prindle, where do you get your 
for Jesus? How do you... I never, ever, ever let go of the cross. That's all it is. He came to preach the gospel to the poor. He came to heal the brokenhearted. This whole world is broken. Broken hearts. Broken relationships in families just... Our kids are suffering. People are broken. And it's not just hearts and relationships. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation is broken. When sin entered the picture, God cursed the very ground that we walk on. And so the second law of thermodynamics has been set into motion, the law of entropy. And everything is starting to, well, has been decaying and winding down. The evidence is our bodies. Now, again, my body is so young, you don't see entropy yet, but someday you... (laughs) Okay, the body begins to stoop, and things begin to get old and not work as well, and the whole earth is broken, amen? Are relationships broken? Is the world system broken? We see storms and disasters and storms and disasters of the heart and of the family and of the mind and people not at peace and everything's broken. And Jesus stood up in the synagogue 2,000 years ago and said, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. It doesn't mean you'll never cry. Revelation 21.4 Now there is a day coming. Somebody needs to hear this. There is a day coming. There is a day coming when you won't have need of crying again. As sure as Jesus Christ of Nazareth broke the time-space continuum and crashed into this world 2,000 years ago, He is crashing through one more time. And according to 2 Peter chapter 3, this time He's going to remake the earth by fire. He's going to purge from this broken earth its sin curse. And then not only will we be new and regenerated, like 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, But the entire earth will be new and regenerated. And that day is coming. But for now, Jesus heals your broken heart. You will not be destroyed by what breaks you. You will not be destroyed by what breaks you. You hold on. Being a pilgrim is hard. I have, I wouldn't do it. I have tons of heartaches and problems in my own life, but guess what? When I wake up in the morning, 1 Peter 1.3, I have been born into a hope. And I cry and I grieve with the people around me, but there is a salve. There is an oil that takes care of the wound. For now, His name is Jesus Christ. He has come to heal the brokenhearted. And you can't say, 
But Shelly, you don't know me and my heartache. I am a geek. I love and still love to build Legos, space Legos. I was such a geek, in fact, that I designed my own spaceship when I was younger, and I sent the plans into Lego. And they said, hey, if you ever want a job with us when you're older, apply. You could use you as a designer. Isn't that awesome? Of course, I didn't take them up on it, but I love to build Legos. I would build these gigantic spaceships, and one day I remember... Well, this often happened. I'd set it in the living room under the coffee table. I'd think it was safe, and one of my pesky little brothers would hit it somehow or break it somehow. And, of course, to them it was like, what's the big deal? You can just rebuild it. (laughs) The big deal is it was my spaceship. I designed it. I made it. I have an investment in it. And you know what the big deal is this morning? Jesus made every atom, every molecule of your broken body. Jesus currently sustains every neurological synapse that's happening in your brain right now. He has an investment in you. He is the only one that can heal your broken heart. He came to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Let me just emphasize this one more phrase, recovering of sight to the blind. At the very least, he could heal your physical eyesight if he chose to. But that's not what he's talking about here. Because there is something so much more important than physical eyesight. Mrs. Herbster knows this. When I walk into a classroom to teach my classes on an ordinary Monday morning, on an ordinary day, when I have a headache and things aren't so great and the students still have sleep in their eyes, on an ordinary Monday afternoon, I walk into a Bible class, I don't even see a person in the room. I only see souls. I don't sit for hours if needed and work with kids so that they can understand trigonometry. I am patient with them and explain them trigonometry. Do you know why? Because I want them to know that I care about them because I want to invest in their eternity. If Mrs. Prindle cares about me, I can believe what she says about Jesus. Is that how we live with eternal vision? That's called eternal vision. That's called living for something more than what you see. You can't look at people and their problems, and their hang-ups, and you can't look at circumstances, and you can't live your life focusing on the daily grind of life. You've got to be bigger than that. You've got to put on eternal vision. Jesus came to give sight to the spiritually blind. So here's my question. 
When you're running into people and dealing with them on a daily basis, you know, you're in the restaurant and she's a bad waitress. Do you know what I do when I have a bad waitress? I actually think to myself, wonder what's making her that way. Could I possibly be a part of bringing a little bit of Jesus to this situation? I look at my house, I look at my car, I look at my... All these things, all they are is just dedicated tools to the cause of Christ. We as Christians ought to view everything in our lives as sacred. I pointed to the PowerPoint projector in my classroom the other day, and I said to my students, that projector, that's a material thing, but it is sacred. Sacred is what is dedicated and set apart to God's purposes. You can take the material things in your world and quit looking at them as material things and start looking at them as tools for eternity. See, that PowerPoint projector in my classroom helps me preach Jesus Christ to them. That's sacred. When my little nephew Noah asked me to draw and color with him, I'm looking for every possible way to direct my picture and my conversation back to the reality of Jesus Christ. That's sacred time. Time with your children is sacred time. Time across the table for coffee with your friends is sacred time. Your car is a sacred vehicle and your home is a sacred place if you have eternal, eternal vision. He came to give sight to the blind. I have a feeling there's a bunch of blind people in this room. But you know what the beauty is? If you'll say it to Jesus, He can give you sight. Talk about the reality of God. He came to give sight to those that are blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus did not finish the quote from Isaiah 61. He stopped at, I have come to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he didn't finish the last statement which says, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Do you know why? We're still living in the day of grace. As Sean quoted to us, after he said this, he sat down. I love this part. He sat down and he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. But he didn't say, The day of vengeance of our God has come yet. You see, Jesus is sitting in this room. And he has said, Today, this scripture, the sight you need, the hope you need, the peace you need, the poor in spirit attitude you need, 
the freedom from sin you need, it's in this room and has been fulfilled today in Jesus Christ. He came to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. I end by telling you this. The day of vengeance of our God will come as sure and swiftly as Jesus came to the manger. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 says, When Jesus steps up to the great white throne to judge the living and the dead, that the earth and the atmosphere around it will run from his face. Now, wait a second. That's the Bible. Revelation 20.11 says, When Jesus steps up to the throne in all of his holiness, the earth and the atmosphere around us will run from his face because it is so cursed by sin and God is so holy. And then every human soul that has ever lived will stand before the same throne. Can you imagine standing there and you've just watched the earth run from God's holiness and you're about to face Him? What do you want to be holding on to that day? The cross. The cross. The cross. The cross. The day of vengeance is coming, but Jesus today in this room has fulfilled this scripture. He has come into this place right here, right now to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to deliver the captives and give sight to those who are blind, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah said in chapter 7, verse 14, he said, he prophesied, The virgin's going to have a son, and she's going to name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Lord Jesus, we come before you. And our needs are great, but not as great as you. And I'm just praying right now that those who need your hope, those who need this message, would hear your voice and respond to you, Father. I'm just going to ask if there's anybody who wants to to come up front and to spend some time praying that this scripture would be fulfilled in your hearing. That Jesus would come right now in this moment and do the things that we've talked about this morning. Come forward. And I know that leaders in this church, myself, will pray for you and trust God to meet your needs. Thank you.